Well, brothers and sisters, it's good to be with you again. These have been interesting days and interesting weeks. This past week, a member of the mob that invaded the U.S. Capitol was interviewed and shared with the Wall Street Journal his reasons for why he did what he did on January 6, 2021. Quote, he says he felt the need to go inside, that's the Capitol building, to share his views with Congress, but he wanted to consult God first. He shared that he prayed aloud, Lord, is this the right thing to do? Is this what I need to do? And he says he felt God's hand on his back pushing him forward. And that's into the Capitol building. And then, quote unquote, he says, I checked with the Lord. I checked with him three times. The Holy Trinity, three times. I checked with him three times. I never heard a no. And this man, of course, is not alone in sharing these sentiments and the reasons he believes it was the Lord himself who ushered him into the Capitol building on January 6th. 2021. But as we come to God's Word and we consider the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus says in John 14 15, He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That the test of love is the keeping of His Word. What we sang about this morning, not our words, but the precious Word of the Lord. Where does that play a role in our life. That's really the weather vane of who truly is Lord of our lives. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And brothers and sisters, we can easily measure our lives regardless of what we profess and say, and regardless of our membership at a given church or a given Bible study, when we stand before the Lord as he returns, and before the judgment as he will judge all of us and hold each one of us accountable for where we have been and what we have done with our lives. At the end of the day, it's not what Pastor Mark thinks or the elders or anybody else thinks. At the end of the day, it's what the Lord thinks. And the standard and the measure he is going to use for each one of us is the standard and measure of his Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His Life, His Word, and His commands. And that standard is, did you love me? Did you keep my commandments? And Jesus, of course, warns His disciples at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7.21, which shows how Jesus is turning the church and the lives of His saints right side up and how it's the complete opposite of the standards of this world. At the very end, the beginning are the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. Well, at the end, Jesus warns, Matthew 7, 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus is not deceived or fooled. And it's with these words, our our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, He shows us that these events and this narrative and all of the things that we're hearing, brothers and sisters, this is not new. As Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing new under the sun. And with these words, Jesus Himself, He exposes just how depraved and deceived the hearts of men continue to be. Especially the hearts of those who call Him Lord. But the good news of God's Word, brothers and sisters, is that the God of the Bible does not simply expose our sin in order to shame us. Rather, in love, He necessarily exposes both our sin and our shame to save us from our sin. And he does this very specifically with the very word we have willfully and intentionally chosen to ignore. And from the beginning, this is the testimony of God's grace and His mercy 
and His love to sinners like us. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. And we're continuing in this account, not only of the fall of man, but of the foundations of the good news of Jesus Christ. Genesis 3, 8, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And they, and that's the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman... Whom you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree. And I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman. What is this that you have done? The woman said. The serpent deceived me. And I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent. Because you have done this. Cursed are you above all livestock. And above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat. All the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we've noted in weeks past, the good news of Jesus Christ begins in Genesis. And it's with these God-breathed words written by Moses well over 3,000 years ago that the Lord God shows His people that from the beginning He is not like sinful men. God does not withdraw from sin. He does not approve of sin. He is separate from sin. But unlike us, he does not run, he does not hide, he does not withdraw, he does not shut himself into a room or distract himself with a vacation. He doesn't distance himself. He is the God who in love draws near to his lost sheep in order to provide them with the only way of salvation from their sin. And it is a salvation, brothers and sisters, that necessarily begins with our sinfulness being exposed by His Word. The very thing that we typically run from is the very thing that God in love knows that we need. And that brings us to our first point for this morning. In love, the Lord God exposes our sinfulness with His Word. In love, the Lord God exposes our sinfulness with His Word. Why, Pastor Mark, when we read the Bible, do we have to talk about sin all the time? Well, brothers and sisters, in love, the Lord God exposes our sinfulness with His Word. And if we don't understand our sinfulness through the light of His Word, we never talk about our sinfulness through the light of His Word. Brothers and sisters, we will never know the beauty and the grace of the love of God. Golden State Warrior Draymond Green. Oh my goodness, I'm not quoting theologians. Golden State Warrior Draymond Green at a press conference this past week, he made the following observation about sports writers. And the context is he was being asked within this context about assertions he was making about sports writers being addicted to false narratives. Addicted to false narratives. That there are certain narratives, if you go on the websites and you read, you see the same story and over and over again. And what Draymond Green was asserting is fundamentally these men are all wrong about their understanding of basketball. And so he's asked, well, how are you going to, is there anything you can do to help them? Of course, it was being done somewhat facetiously by a sports writer. And so Draymond Green responded. He said, It's like a drug addict. The first step to rehab is admitting that you're a drug addict. 
No one, and he's referring to sports writers and their addiction to false narratives, no one is going to do that. Now, I don't want you to walk away from today's sermon thinking that the moral of this story is don't be like James Harden or Carmelo Anthony or Kobe Bryant and be like Draymond Green. That's not what I'm doing. I'm coming and saying, even in the world at large, there's a realization that few people want to admit that they have a problem, that they are a problem, or that they are living a lie. And yet until we are willing to admit that we are living a lie, that we have a problem, that we are the problem, there will never even be rehabilitation, let alone things getting better. And sadly, of course, in the world of drug addiction, that is made obvious on a regular basis. Sadly, what we play out is no one wants to admit any of those things. And yet, brothers and sisters, this is the truth that God and love shows us must be embraced. If there is going to be a turning point in our problems, we will never look to the Lord and our need for a Savior and a Lord. If first, we are not willing to come face to face with who we are according to that word. And in Genesis 3, 8 through 15, what the Lord does so graciously is in love, He draws near to the first man and woman, even as He draws near to us. And He does for us what we would and could never do for ourselves. He exposes our sinfulness with His Word. And He does so with a series of very simple questions. The first question that He begins with is, Where are you? And the last question at the end is, What have you done? First man and woman. The two are one. And He asks them, Where are you and what have you done? And brothers and sisters, these are two questions that essentially sum up the entirety of our lives. Where are you in relationship to the Lord? Where do you stand? What have you done with your life? What do you have to show for it? What does your life, your marriage, your family, your work, what do they demonstrate and what do they show? And brothers and sisters, we need to consider this, and this is a gift from the Lord, sooner rather than later, because you don't want to be figuring this out on Judgment Day or after the Lord has taken you away in a car accident or a heart attack or COVID-19, God forbid. We have a friend recently this week whose father went into the hospital and did not come out. Just like that. I was speaking to him Monday and got the news Tuesday. You know, asking how, you know, this man's father-in-law, stepfather was doing. And, 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 and the result was, yes, well, he's in the hospital, he's being cared for. And the next day we found out his, this man was passed and, and gone. You don't want to be figuring it out, brothers and sisters, on your, on your deathbed or in the hospital. Where are you in relationship to the Lord? And what do you have to show for your life? What have you done? And it's worth going and doing an inventory, brothers and sisters. This afternoon, the elders are going to gather to meet for our elders' sort of retreat and meeting. And one of the things that we do when we gather together is to consider, okay, let's look at last year. Where did we hit? Where did we miss? What have we done? Because we know that the Lord is going to hold us accountable for your souls. Mark, Pastor Mark, Mark will call me. How did Daniel do? How did Willie do? I'm holding you, Pastor Mark, accountable. Did you keep my word? Did you shepherd these men? Did you hold them accountable? Did you draw near? And with my word graciously and gently show them at times when they were straying so that they could be brought back in love. Now, I'm using these men as examples. I'm not calling them out. I do it because I love them and I've spent time. But the Lord is going to hold me accountable, brothers and sisters, for each one of you. Pastor Mark, what have you done? And with these words and with these questions, as the Lord God asks the first man and the first woman, He doesn't come and He doesn't slam them, He doesn't condemn them, He just says, where are you and what have you done? He gives them the opportunity to come clean. How sweet and gracious is our Lord. He, he 
leaves a blank slate and lets them and gives them that opportunity to simply confess their sin, repent, and look to Him for help. All they needed to do at this point, where everything would be turned around, is to say, God, I sinned, I disobeyed Your Word, I need Your forgiveness, I need Your help. I blew it. And brothers and sisters, that's the foundation of Matthew 18 that Jesus walks the church through about how to come and love and care for sheep who have strayed. But it's worth noting to the Lord God's question, where are you? What does the first man say? He is unable and unwilling to give God a straight answer. Brothers and sisters, it is always revealing. Whether it be our family, our friends, or our co-workers. When someone is unable to give a straight answer. In fact, many times I'll share with the elders or my wife when they ask me how a session went with someone. One of my standard replies was, there was a a two-minute session that got turned into a three-hour session. What could have been done in two minutes ended up three hours. Why three hours? Because people are running around trying to find a way not to give a straight answer. And instead of giving a straight answer, the first man does three things that demonstrate his sinfulness. He does three things that demonstrate his sinfulness. He deflects He self-justifies and he blame shifts. He deflects, he self-justifies and he blame shifts. What is deflection? Deflection is to redirect the focus from our sin to some other place so that the focus is neither on us or sin. It's a bait and switch. I heard the sound of you in the garden. Where are you? He didn't say where he was. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. God, this is about you and the sound that you make when you come in in the garden in the evening. Self-justification. What is self-justification? When we try and justify ourselves. In the psychological world, the term they use for this is rationalize. Rationalize being a defense mechanism that we use to excuse inappropriate behavior. But in Scripture, we refer to that as sin. Self-justification is the way we make an excuse for our sin. Or the way we claim we have a right to sin. Okay? It's, it's what we heard at the beginning of that narration. Well, the Lord told me to go into the Capitol building and violate federal law. Now, if you're parents and you have children, you're well familiar with this. He hit me first. He did it first. And we think of that in our families, brothers and sisters, but you know and I know, it's not just children who play that game. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam walks through all the circumstances that led up to him running, hiding, withdrawing. Whether it's in a bush, a room, or in front of a TV set, brothers and sisters. Self-justification. And finally, blame shifting. Laying part or all of the responsibility or blame for our sin on someone else. Laying part or all of the responsibility or blame for our sin on someone else. This is not the word of the Lord. This is my paraphrase, okay? But, you know, the the general tone to some degree as you hear Adam speak is, God, I'm here hiding in the bushes, covered in fig leaves, because you showed up. You made me afraid. If you would just let it go, God, if you would just handle this differently, God, this is not about me. This is about you. And we'll see later on as we walk through how... Adam continues to walk down this path. And we see what Adam is really trying to do. He's trying to conceal and control and deceive. He's trying to play God. And he's doing it with a false narrative. And with this twisted narrative, 
Adam makes himself the victim and God the bully. And as he does so, you know, it's, it's you're the one who scared me to run and hide in here and shaking like a leaf. And with this twisted narrative, the first man shows just how sinful he is and has become. And brothers and sisters, this is what we all reveal when we try to conceal and control and deceive by deflecting, self-justifying, and blame-shifting. And the experts of that in the New Testament were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they did this with Bible verses and religion and good works. And when we do this, brothers and sisters, what we're showing and what the Lord is exposing with His Word is how we are living and selling the serpent's lie. We're living and selling the serpent's lie. What was the serpent's lie in the beginning? To Eve, as he walks down that path, God's God's got a special secret. He knows that when you eat this, you're going to become special and you're going to become like Him. You're the victim. He's the bully. He's loading this against you. He's not good. He's withholding goodness from you. And He's giving you the short end of the stick. The tragedy here is as God just simply asks Adam and Eve to come clean and just ask them what happened. Here's how self-deceived and blind they are. In the same way they try and conceal their sin, they end up going and sharing the exact same twisted narrative that the serpent sold to them. Brothers and sisters, they're living the lie. And we do the same, brothers and sisters, when we walk down that path of self-justification, of blame-shifting. We walk down that path where we basically say, we're the victim and God and everyone else, my spouse, my kids, my church, my elders, they're the ones who are the problem. And in Matthew twelve thirty-four, Jesus shows that things don't change over time or in the New Testament. And he shows how religious people use their religion to live and sell the serpent's lie. And in this time, he's speaking specifically to the Pharisees. The Pharisees who are being held accountable by the life and gospel ministry and the good news of Jesus Christ. And so what do they do? They demonize Jesus. Literally, they demonize Jesus. And as Jesus casts out demons, well, they tell everybody, you know what? He's casting out demons because he himself is a servant of Satan. That's how he does it. And what does Jesus say in response to Matthew twelve thirty four? You brood of what? Vipers. Snakes. It's not by accident that Jesus says that. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What the Lord has done with these simple questions is He's exposed how much the serpent's lies have become a part of the first man and woman's life. And by extension, brothers and sisters, all of our lives. Because... Brothers and sisters, if we're honest, Pastor Mark up here in the front, it is not our second nature, it's our first nature. When someone confronts us about our sin, be it our wife, our children, our church members, our elders, our first inclination is to deflect, distract, self-justify, and blame shift. But the good news of God's Word is we might be self-deceived fools, believing that we can fool the Lord. But the good news of God's Word is God is no fool. This brings us to our second point this morning. In love, the Lord God exposes the heart of our sinfulness. In love, the Lord God exposes the heart of our sinfulness with His Word. One of the beautiful ways, brothers and sisters, that the Lord God shows us His grace is that God does not simply expose or condemn our sin. He doesn't do that. He doesn't run around and say, you looked at pornography, bad person. 
you stole a bad person. You spoke an unkind word, bad person. It's not that he approves. He certainly says it's wrong. But he doesn't stop there, brothers and sisters. In love, he goes and he exposes the root and the heart of the sin that bore that fruit. He goes for the heart, brothers and sisters, and he exposes it because that is the remedy. We need a new heart and we need a new life. And that is, in contrast, as you look at Jesus' gospel ministry, what he does, he always goes for the heart, in contrast to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Men who conceal their sin by condemning the sin of others. Finger pointers. We see that the Father, like the Son, this is what he does in verse 11 and 13, with the simple question, Who told you that you were naked? Because he proceeds with the questions. What the Lord God exposes is whose word now informs or guides Adam and Eve's lives. Who told you? Who informed you? Who let you know? Because Adam says to them, well, we had because we were naked. Whose word is informing and guiding Adam's life? Whose understanding is leading the actions in his life? clearly not the Lord's. Then with the question, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The Lord God exposes who is the Lord of their life. Whose commands and words are you following? Very clearly it's not God's. And when in verse 13 the Lord God asked the woman, what is this that you have done? What is this that you have done? The Lord God exposes whose work Adam and Eve have chosen to live by. It's not God's work. It's not God's word. And it's not God's lordship. Brothers and sisters, every time we walk away from the word of the Lord, in a small part or a big part, what we are walking away from is the person of God, the work of God, and the word of God. And what we are saying and making a statement is, my word is better than your word, God. My understanding is better than your understanding, God. And my work is better than your work. I believe in me. I believe in me. John 14, 15, which we read earlier this morning, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in this way, the Lord with these questions is showing the first man and woman who they really love. And it is not God. Brothers and sisters, when our our lives, our work, our marriages, our ministries are all about What we think is best. When they. Willfully intentionally. Deviate. From the word of the Lord. Well I didn't know any better. Well Pastor Mark I didn't know that passage of scripture. And all the excuses that we walked down. No. At the end of the day, brothers and sisters, if you love the Lord, He has given you enough to walk with Him, to protect you, to care for you, to guide you. Even if it is, I don't know what this is, maybe I should phone one of the elders and ask them what I should do. But when we walk in a different direction like Adam and Eve, brothers and sisters... When we reject submission to the will and word and work of God, who does this show we love and esteem the most? It's not God, brothers and sisters, it's us. And that, brothers and sisters, is the heart that the Lord exposes for the first man and woman. A self-serving, self-deceiving, exalting pride. And this is the heart that's clearly on display with the answers that Adam and Eve give the first man and first woman to these questions that God has asked. In verse 12, the man says, 
in response to the Lord's question. When he says, who told you that you were naked? And have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? What does the man say? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then in verse 13, in response to the question, what is this that you have done? The woman says, the serpent. The serpent, as we talked about in weeks past, this is a creature who God had created. This creature lends itself to be the mouthpiece of Satan. So what he speaks are the lies of the devil. But nonetheless, it is a creature that God has created. The woman says, the serpent, the serpent you created, deceived me and I ate. Hebrew scholar Wenham says, neither the first man or woman is capable of exhibiting contrition or honesty. Neither is capable of exhibiting contrition or honesty. And when they finally do admit to the Lord that they disobeyed His command, each one of them does at this point. At the very end, they say, I ate. They came out and they make that statement. You said not to eat, I ate. But look carefully at their words, what they do. They do so not to confess, but they do so to connect it with blaming someone else. And who exactly does the man blame? He throws his wife under the bus. Now you go back to Genesis 2, and you see the beauty at the end of Genesis 2, where the Lord brings the woman he has just created out of Adam's rib and he brings it says he brings her to him to be with him this idea of being with him is that this is God's gift that gift of unity that God has given God has created and the setup for that is there's no other creature who God has created who fits the bill It's not good for the man to be alone and nobody else fits the bill. There's no other companion suitable for the man. So God creates someone special. And what's very interesting, go to Matthew 19 later. And the Pharisees, those who condemn everybody else to conceal their own sins. We're all debating about what are really good reasons and legitimate reasons that we can divorce a wife. Let us know how we can get out of this and still be okay with God. And Jesus brings them back to this passage, Genesis 2. Have you not read in the beginning? He talks about leaving and cleaving. But he makes the point, he was brought the man and woman together. Let no man separate. That this is a work of the Lord. God has crafted this woman as the perfect gift and companion for you. This is a gift of God's grace. This is the very person who the first man throws under the bus. And in doing so, he's throwing God under the bus. Brothers and sisters, this is what a heart of self-exalting, self-deceiving pride does. Where we are willing to throw anyone and everyone, our spouse, our kids, our work, our family, our church, whatever it is. To say, this is the reason why I ended up not obeying God's command or not doing what I was supposed to. And in the end, brothers and sisters, the one we're really pointing the finger at, is God. And as we do so, we stand over God, in judgment of God, with a narrative that is false, and yet we say, this is what is true. I, the sinner, am going to stand in judgment of God and say why this happened. We see, similarly, the woman is not that far off. Sadly, following her husband's lead in his blame shifting. Brothers and sisters, if there's any evidence of original sin, that we are born into sin and Adam and Eve's sin is in us and part of us, and we live this out on a regular basis, you need look no further 
Not only at the Capitol and the events of that last week, but the events of our own lives as well. Because, brothers and sisters, we do this all the time. And I share with you, I'm part of this. Hebrew rabbi and scholar, Umberto Casuto, writes, We often find excuses for ourselves by throwing the blame on our companions. He writes, This is characteristically human. This man is not a Christian. He was a rabbi and a Hebrew scholar. He says, This is characteristically human. People are inclined to justify their conduct by pointing to the circumstances and fate that God has allotted to them in life. People are inclined to justify their conduct by pointing to the circumstances and fate that God has allotted to them in life. It's my kids. It was my spouse. It's my elders. I can't get this done because they're too slow. It's the Wuhan virus. Those immigrants who keep coming across the border. It's the Jews who have formed this conspiracy in Germany and have fixed the banking markets in Europe and have handicapped us. And so we need to perform genocide and put them in a camp and get rid of them, along with the mentally retarded and along with everybody else who does not meet the standard of the Aryan people who should be pushing us forward. Brothers and sisters, when we do this, who are we really blaming for the ugliness of our hearts, our nation, and our world? When we are willing to throw everyone, including God, under the bus, what does that say about our hearts, who we love and who we esteem most? Well, in 2 Samuel 12, 9, the Lord confronts even King David of the same sin. King David has slept with a woman. And to cover his sin, he tries to peddle a false narrative and brings her husband home and gets him drunk and then sends him home so that this man can look like he's the one who got his wife pregnant. And when this man, Uriah, the Hittite, Hittite, one of the mighty men, so perhaps even a convert, shows himself to be more faithful than the king of the Jews at that time and refuses to sleep with his wife, David eventually, with a lie, sets Uriah up to be killed. And then he goes on and takes that woman into his home and he lives the lie as if everything's good and there's no problem, even though I'm sure everybody knew God in love draws near to David, a man after God's own heart, but still capable of great sin. And God in love sends Nathan to tell him the parable of the man who takes that little sheep. David's outraged. Nathan points out in love, you are the man, you're the problem, you're the one living the lie. And Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, 9 says to King David, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Brothers and sisters, God's gift of repentance begins with exposing this heart that despises and hates God's word. God's gift of repentance to us is his gift of loving us and drawing near and showing us that what's in our hearts is not good, brothers and sisters, it's evil. That we hate and despise God's word and we love and esteem the devil's lies. It's a heart of self-deceiving and exalting pride that believes that we know better than God what is right. But the good news of God's word is that his truth is greater than our lives. This brings us to our third and final point for this morning. In love, 
the Lord God replaces our prideful lies with his word of truth. In love, the Lord God replaces our prideful lies with his word of truth. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, informs those who are following him. He says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And he also says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way to the Father but by me. Brothers and sisters, the good news of God's word in the gospel is that Jesus has come to bring truth into our life, to expose the lies, but not just to expose the lies, but to replace those lies with the truth of God's word. Because that, brothers and sisters, is what we need to set us free from a life that lives the lies of the serpent. Though we may try to rewrite the narrative of our world and our lives with the lie, and though we may deceive others and ourselves, the good news is that we cannot deceive the Lord God, who is no fool, but He is the holy creator and judge of all. And we see here as we come to verse 14, the Lord God having exposed the sinfulness and deceit and folly of the first man and woman, and having done so, incidentally, by the testimony and confession of two witnesses, the first man and the first woman, God is consistent. Same God of Genesis chapter 3 and Matthew 18. In verse 14, what he does is by his word, he begins to deliver the first man and woman and he begins to deliver creation with the truth of his word. So what's worth, what's worth noting here is he does not give the serpent, the first deceiver, the opportunity to speak. First man, first woman, he gives them an opportunity to respond. The first deceiver, the serpent, who has lent his mouth to the lies of the devil. He gives no opportunity to speak whatsoever. And then in verse 14 through 15, the Lord begins laying down the truth. You've all said your lies. You've all said your deception. But now I am going to speak. And the good news of God's word is his word has the last say. And as God speaks, he lays down what has been their guilt, who they are, what they are right now, and where they will be, past, present, and future. The word of the Lord rules. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, and previously before what was said is the serpent deceived me. The deception of the servant. Because you have done this. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And next week we're going to deal with this in more detail because... This is foundational to the mercy and grace of God that we see in the gospel. But what I want to draw your attention to just briefly here. Is that the Lord God begins to destroy the power of sin in the life of the first man and woman. By speaking the truth into their lives. And by drawing near and replacing and exposing the lies of Satan. And instead... Allowing his word to rule their lives. Brothers and sisters, this is the way the Lord always saves his people. He exposes the lie and then he replaces the lie with his truth. And that's why in John, when Jesus says the truth will set you free. There's a division that happens between those who are listening. There are those who don't want to believe what Jesus has to say. They don't want to believe they are slaves to sin. And so instead they want to kill Jesus. And Jesus points out, well, you're the son of the devil. Sons of the devil. Who was always a father of lies and who was always trying to be a murderer. The sweetness and goodness of the Lord was that was not the only, those were not the only ones who were there who were listening. As you go through the Gospel of John, 
And as you see the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman with several husbands, several men in her lives, fallen, isolated. How Jesus does exactly the same thing. He exposes her to the truth of her life. She's a fallen woman. She can't fix her life. She can't sort out her problems. She wants to talk about where you are going to worship. That's the last of her problems, whether you're going to worship in Samaria or Jerusalem. The problem is you've lived your own life and you've written your own rules. And yet what Jesus does is he tells her everything about her. Come, see the man who's told me everything about my life. And as he does so lovingly and graciously, he replaces the lie of her life with the truth that Christ has come, that the Lord has drawn near, and he has come to speak truth. And one day he will die on a cross. And on that cross, he ultimately will crush the serpent. And he will crush the power of the lie. And he will demonstrate to all. You say you're the victims and God is the bully. But the cross shows who the true victim is. And who the true abusers and bullies are. And he does so, brothers and sisters, to take your place and mine and to bear our sin. For what purpose and what end? So that we might be children of the light and truth. So that we no longer have to live the lie. So that we no longer are under the power of the lie. So things, brothers and sisters, can be right side up. Here with this judgment, the one who destroyed men with lies will himself be destroyed. By the word of the Lord and the Son of Man. And through the seed of woman, hope is given of one who will bruise the head of the deceiver. Brothers and sisters, this is why the gospel is good news. And this is why those who are saved have reason to celebrate. And yes, we struggle with sin. And yes, we live under hard circumstances. But we no longer need to blame our children, our church, our spouses, the world around us. We, like Paul, can say we are the chief among sinners, but the Lord has shown us mercy. And we are able to say, it is by grace we have been saved through faith in Christ. And this is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. You want to tell me I'm an imperfect pastor who preaches imperfectly and runs an imperfect church? True. I am a sinner. I am only here because of the mercy and grace of God. Early in our marriage, Julie raised the question, can I trust you? It's a fair question. I dropped the ball. But I was able to say, look, honey, you can't trust me. I'm a sinner saved by grace, but you can trust Jesus and he is king of this marriage. And he's the one who put us together before the foundation of time. And who the Lord has put together, let no man separate. Brothers and sisters, the gospel sets us free. And so this is why Paul and Timothy is laboring and pleading and jumping up and down when they are getting sidetracked about speculations about genealogies and myths. Brothers and sisters, God has given us the truth and he died for the truth to set us free. We are children of the truth. It is precious. It's what Peter led us in this morning when he asked, is the gospel precious to you? He has given us the narrative that is true. We can live by that. Why are we living by other narratives? The only reason we live by other narratives is to cover our sin. And so when we go back to the beginning, to that man who was interviewed for the Wall Street Journal and explained how it was the Lord who he asked three times, who ushered and pushed him into the Capitol building. It's no surprise as you read the rest of that article that he's been feeding, lonely and isolated that he is, and a desire to be part of something. He's been feeding on what? Conspiracy theories. Now I want to highlight this one last point. Brothers and sisters, there's all this exchange on social media. 
There's all this engagement by believers in conspiracy theories. There is no place for a child of God to engage in conspiracy theories. Your narrative is the good news of Jesus Christ. That God has saved sinners through the life and the crucifixion and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And he has made you his child. That is the only narrative that will give you life. And when we deviate from that, for whatever reason, we're engaging in conspiracy theories. What conspiracy theories do is they provide an alternate narrative, a secret story, Gnosticism, which allows us to say we're good, everybody else is to blame. It's the Chinese, it's the Russians, it's... The cabal and the deep state. It's all of these other things. It's blame shifting, brothers and sisters. And it's interesting to know. Isaiah 8.12. Isaiah 8.12. The Lord commands his people not to engage in conspiracy theories. Isaiah 8.12. Do not call conspiracy. All that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. The children of the Lord are to be different. You're to be children of the truth. And when the rest of the world is afraid, you don't need to be afraid. Because even if this world crucifies you, the Lord is going to raise you up. And you will be with the Lord forever. And you will be a child of God now and through eternity. It says, verse 13, But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. Brothers and sisters, are we living the gospel? Is Jesus Lord of your life and your narrative? If that is the case, brothers and sisters, when you sin, you have someone you can go to. He desires to forgive you. When you drop the ball, you have someone you can pray to. And you have someone who will speak the truth in love into your life and will pick you up and replace the lies with the truth. And he will restore you and forgive you and remind you that you are a child of God for whom he has died for. He will never let you go. Which narrative, brothers and sisters, will you choose? Lord Jesus, give us the faith to reject Satan's lies. And to live by the truth of the one who has loved us and has given his life to set us free. In your name we pray. Amen.